A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. To our parenting segment now. Thanks for your questions that you've emailed in and texted already for Nathan McCarty Wallace, who's part of the Brainwave Trust and X Factor Education in Christchurch. He's been a lecturer at the Christchurch College of Education, lecturing in human development, brain development, language and communication, and risk and resilience. And today we're talking about what three to seven year olds need to learn. A very good morning, Nathan. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? Very well, thank you. Lots of questions coming in already, which is great. great. But shall we set out some basic parameters? First of all, learning yep. learning in the home environment and then learning in the school environment. What are some of the basics that children of this age need to, to maximise their uh, ability to do this? Well, I suppose the first thing to mention is that um, you know kids of this age are not little adults. I think by the time you're seven, you're all in your frontal cortex, and seven-year-olds do learn in a similar way to adults. So it's more fair to say that a seven-year-old is a little adult. But when we impose that on the three- to seven-year-olds, we're sort of missing the driving force behind their development. They're not, um, they learn with a different part of the brain. They need a different type of learning. I mean, the literature talks about they need social-emotional skills rather than cognitive skills. What that means, put simply, is that it doesn't really matter how early or how many of their numbers they know or their colours or their alphabet. It's parents' perception that that's making the child intelligent, but that's not what the research shows. The research shows it's all about their social-emotional skills. So get rid of whatever kind of stuff you've brought off the television or online that's going to make your child a genius by you know, pumping in rote learning or making it listen to that's Mozart right. 24 hours a day. Yep. The, 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 when you say the social and emotional skills, yep. be a bit more specific about what they need and, and how you can assist them. Okay, well, put it, the most simple way I can put it is it's how the child feels about themselves as a learner is, forms the basis for how they're going to do when they are seven. So, for instance, if you want to go to the research on who's doing well when they're 32 to 35 years old, who's most likely to have a degree, and you want to predict that based on what they're doing between three and seven, it's got nothing to do with how early they learn their colours or their numbers. The research shows that sort of stuff plateaus out around seven, eight, nine. So the eight-year-old that learned to read at three and a half has got the same reading age, typically, as the eight-year-old that learned to read at six and a half. So the advantage is gone. What they, um, if you want to measure who's going to be doing well when they're 32 and base it on the under seven-year-old stuff, it's to do with your perception of yourself as a learner. Exactly. Do we go even further? Do we go perception of yourself or stop? You start with basic things. Am I loved? Am I secure? Oh, absolutely. All these yep. things. And then to build an extra layer on those basics, yep. what am I like as a learner, which will later become, I'm sure, am I dumb or am I bright? But yep. what am I like as a learner? How do you begin to build positive experiences and a positive attitude around that? Yeah. Uh, that stuff about, you know, am I loved, am I valued, I sort of think of that as a zero to three stuff. You know, that's when you really establish the basis for that. Um, you know, if you've got two kids um, living next door to each other, and um, they're both about both five, say, about to start school, and um, one of them can, she can count up to 100, she knows her colours, she knows her numbers, she can hold a pencil, but when um, she says to her mum, Mum, I can count to 100, and, you know, she goes, 1, 2, 98, 99, 100. Mum responds by going, and what comes after 100? 100 and... And so if you said to that child, what are you like as a learner? 
then she would probably say, oh, um, I'm all right, but I'm not quite good enough. I didn't know what come after 100. So, first thing is what? Praise. Well done. Good for you. That kind of thing? Yeah, well, it's um, it's like the kid next door who doesn't know any of his numbers and doesn't know his colours and he's the same age and he just hasn't bothered doing any of that stuff. But you say to him, mate, what sort of learner are you? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sweet, I think. Um, you know, if it gets too hard, I just keep trying or ask someone to help and... Yeah, um, you know, I think I'm pretty good at learning. That's the kid who's more likely to have a degree at 32. So I think it's for parents to understand, it's to build up their experience as being successful in learning. There's a real balance here, because I know exactly what you're saying. You want a child to have the starting point that they can learn, they can learn well, they can learn anything they want. Yep. You've just got to keep going. Yeah, uh, right. But then there's that second point, which is you do want them to keep going. So you do you want to do both? Do you want to say, good for you, that's great, but also nudge them on to looking for the next thing? Do you see what I mean about it being a fine line? Yeah, I do, I do. It is a fine line. You don't want to say, oh, great, I'm good at that. I feel good, excellent. I'll go and do what I want now, or I won't push myself harder. Yep. Uh, not a word I'm sure that, that you would use anyway, but, you know, I won't stretch myself. Yeah. So if you're what? trying, and I imagine it's not... A big deal at one age, it might be something you introduce at another age. How do you mm -hmm. begin to get that balance between building confidence that I can learn, yep. but also a desire to push on and learn? I think if you make the, if the child is really confident about their ability to learn, a lot of that, um, that moving forward and placing new self -generated. challenges is self-generated because they feel confident, they know they can do it, so they're hungry for new information. I think the balance there for us as parents is about... Um, realising that when we encourage a child to follow their own lead, we actually get better academic results. So when we push the child slightly, that tends to inhibit risk-taking. A big part of um, building your intelligence is risk-taking. You know, if I say to my son at the back in the car goes, um, oh, Dad, I can see the sheeps. And I go, oh, no, mate, they're not sheeps. You don't put an S on sheep, you just say sheep. Then what happens is that in the next half hour, the research shows he uses much less language. So it slows down his language production. Whereas all I needed to say was, yeah, mate, I can see the sheep too. And I haven't been corrective, but I've modelled the appropriate response. Very good, because you do want to transfer knowledge and skills and concepts to them. What you're saying is yep. it's how you do it that'll make a big difference. Yeah, but a lot of that knowledge and, and that content knowledge is really seven-year-old stuff. Yeah. Between three and seven, you want to create a thinker. You want them to be creative. You want them to be divergent. And that means really sort of avoiding right and wrong answers. So you don't need to worry if it's sheeps. It won't be sheeps when he's 37. Yeah, that's right. We don't need to worry about that, and correcting him is actually just going to slow it down. Right, so in that early stage, building confidence, well done, um, and, and, and reassuring. Yeah, and specifically tell him what he's done well done, rather than just saying well done. So reinforcing it. Yeah, I really like the way you mixture the orange and the red together to make that colour. Then the kid knows, oh, the thing I did well was mix the colours. Whereas if you walk past him and say, oh, good boy because he's painting a picture and he's picking his nose at the same time. He doesn't know which one you're praising. <laughs> he probably, well, he probably will pick his nose at 37, but hopefully not in public. <laughs> Kevin, before, we've got lots of questions coming in, so okay. I won't muck around, but come Thanks. to that transition to preschool and then to school. Because, OK, you can start building these concepts, then they're going off and someone else, adult and child, is beginning to influence this. Uh, and so what are you looking out for there? Um, what am I looking out for in terms of transitioning yeah, into when, school? Yeah, when they go to preschool and onto school. Right. Um, what you're looking for, I suppose, is a primary attachment relationship. The kid needs to be anchored into someone at the preschool. So rather than expecting them to have relationships with seven teachers, they can have relationships with seven teachers as long as they're anchored in one relationship. So that's the first thing to look for, that they've got a primary care, that the child's got a person to go to when they leave their parent. 
What you also want is for the... I mean, most centres are going to be operating, operating under the national curriculum, to Fāraki, and that's going to encourage um, divergent thinking, creativity... Um, openness. Basically, it's that thing I said before about not right or wrong answers. Mm. And hopefully you've already built enough confidence or self-image about being yep. a learner by the time they've gone off there, that if a teacher or another adult or another child is challenging yep. that or doing it a different way, you've already laid down that essential self-belief. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's the create, you know, intelligence is really problem-solving at its heart, and problem-solving is hugely enhanced by creativity. So again, if I say to two kids in the back seat of the car, I wonder why the sky's blue, and one goes, oh, because the earth's mainly water and it's reflecting the water, that's correct, that's a good answer for a seven-year-old, but actually the four-year-old that goes, oh, I think the sky's blue because this whole world's actually a dream that I'm having, and in the dream I'm the sky and me, and when I asked for an ice block and you wouldn't give me one, that made me sad, so I'm blue, so so's the sky. That's clearly illogical, it's not correct, but that's the child that's showing more intelligence. That's got far more deeper cognition. That's setting you up between three and seven far more than just right, wrong answers. So leave it alone. That desire to get in there and start putting the facts in can wait. Create the thinker before you put the facts in. Which is really interesting because there's this worry, and it is a worry now, of the increasing formalisation of preschool and, yep. and even early primary, that it's mm-hmm. getting all too formal too quick. Absolutely. And this is a real tension between what parents and community think and what the literature shows. Because actually the good outcomes are associated with less structure. Okay. Uh, let's get into that. Well, actually, one more, and then we'll get into okay. questions. One more, which is if you've got that learner, young learner, and you mm-hmm. want to get that feeling of them being feeling good about themselves as a yep. learner, and you're not getting that impression, or they're making negative comments back at you, or, yep. like if something's going wrong, how can yep. you intervene? Intervene by stop asking right, wrong questions. Stop asking testing questions. What colour is this? The child gets the message that you're just valuing him as a performer rather than as a thinker. Children want to have their own opinion. So asking open-ended questions, you know? Do you, why do you, you know, like, I, why, where do you think the universe come from? There's a far better question to be asking a three- to seven-year-old than what colour is this? That ten, you know, if you had a friend and you were testing your friend constantly, that's not very high-quality communication. You know, and it's the same with children. So I'd say if the child's not looking like they're confident, it's probably oftentimes because you've valued too much right and wrong answers, you've valued too much the imperating pack, and you're not actually listening to the child and their concept of the world. Okay. Now I'm just going to put this first email to s- aside because I think we've probably already ticked off a fair bit of it. It's a place sent a parent wanting to know about what type of learning the child is capable of and should be supported of through the ages of five to seven. I think you've given that a pretty good go already. Mm -hmm. Now this one's three children under five, all have attended preschool. As I return to my career each time, preschools always said they're very clever children and I'm nervous about missing any key things. So should I be doing anything for them, given that I also believe they're talented? I don't necessarily know what to develop when and when I should do this. My boy shows keen learning ability in music, my daughter in art and sport. The one-year-old demonstrates great abilities. Should I look at scholarships at private schools as we don't feel we have the finances but are in a great primary school zone? What are the pitfalls of of, uh, scholarships? And this parent also asks about uh, do children feel under too much pressure? There's so much pressure and options on activities for children from this camp to that class. Mm -hmm. I think you've probably had a go at that too, haven't you, already, which is ease up. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely ease up. Don't, they're not a little seven-year-old, so, you know, I mean, absolutely follow their interests. She said how her kids got interests there in music and things, absolutely follow those, because if it's child-led, but you don't have to be doing all the courses and the lessons and the allocution lessons and the extra cognitive stimulation. That's not what leads to success. You have to, like I keep saying, you have to build a thinker first. So, yes, do those things if the child's interested in them, but if they're not fun and the child's not enjoying it, it could actually be more damaging than it is good. And what you were saying there when she's worried about having missed out on uh, or anything being missed out at preschool, what you're yeah. saying is it's that basic confidence about learning and self-image about learning yeah. that's, that's the most important thing. Have a high-quality relationship. I would say to that mum, don't think, oh, am I supposed to be doing all these cognitive things in my spare time and teaching them to read? No, the opposite. Focus on having a quality relationship where you've got quality communication and the child feels listened to. And that's, you know, reflective listening. Stop giving advice all the time. Sometimes just paraphrase back what they've said. Same way that you'd talk to a friend almost. Speaking on children who are appearing to have a lot of ability or perhaps to be gifted, this email, a daughter is five and has been identified as gifted. She's very sensitive and intense in her thoughts and feelings and doesn't cope well in new situations. Mm. Any advice for settling into school and any special considerations re-giftedness in education? Mm -hmm. I think um, the... The school is probably going to meet her needs to be gifted, I would imagine. You know, most schools have a good program for dealing with gifted children and their advanced, you know, cognition and needs. Um, so, yeah, sorry, Catherine, can you say the start of that question again? Well, I, I guess she's saying, um, you know, the, the sensitivity and intense, uh, she's sensitive and intense well, in her thoughts right, yeah. and feelings. Mm -hmm. So this is alongside learning. This is more yeah. uh, her emotional um, state or Yeah, but that bad. completely underpins learning. You know, if you're dealing with anxiety, that inhibits your ability to engage your higher brain and and be gifted. So again, I'm sort of repeating this, but what I'd say to the gifted child is she's probably got excellent cognition, so make sure she's got the right dispositions as well. Make sure she, um, you know, um, values herself, that she sees herself as a, as a good learner, that her opinion is valued, not just her ability to parrot back facts. Oftentimes when we talk about kids being gifted, it's because they can read and they can name all their colours and they know all their numbers and they're acting like a seven-year-old. I think that can be a danger sign to me. The other thing that strikes me from this email is some children have this, <clears throat> perhaps intelligent children like this, have a very intense internal life and internal world. Yep. That they then have to translate into these organised kind of external worlds. Mm -hmm. Yep. Can you, is there any way of addressing that or just understanding that that's perhaps the way she is? Just understand that and value social skills. She sounds like this girl's driving her own cognition. Maybe what she needs assistance with is social skills. Are we letting her, you know, um, have time with friends that's not directed by adults? Are we, you know, is she having sleepovers? Is she involved in girl guides? Or, you know, I'd be focusing on social skills because that's often what enables us to deal with things like anxiety. Let's go to a different issue then. What about the five-and-a-half-year-old boy who says school is boring? He loves the playing. He attended Play yep. Centre, but is having difficulty with the regimented structure of mm. school, classroom and standards. Yep. So that boy's problem is that he's completely normal. You know, that's... Um... <laughs> Actually, someone else has just emailed in, so why do we send kids to school at five then? Should we start at seven? And yeah, well, it's Apart interesting from that. practicalities, probably yes. Well, yeah, most Western countries start the school at six because our education is based on this guy called Piaget and the stages of development. You know, that's why we have intermediates, a special school for that age. That's Piaget's idea. Why do most Western schools start at six? It's Piaget's theory of cognitive development. You're ready for that stuff at seven. You start school at six, so you've got a year to socialise into school. It was during the war when there 
there was a shortage of labour that um, we lowered the age to five, like lots of Western countries did. But most Western countries put it back to six afterwards. So, yeah, there is some real validity in thinking that it's very early for a boy to be starting to do that sort so of stuff. So maybe he just wants to keep playing. And that's another yep. thing, actually, the power of play, especially when they're moving Huge. into the structured environment. Just mm-hmm. keep up heaps of opportunities for play because that is their yep. learning in many ways. That's right. Open-ended, you know, meaning that there's no right result, you know, at the end of it. There's not a certain model that you're supposed to put through. It's like Lego. You can create what you want. There's no right and wrong answer. And it's self-driven. Yep, self-driven, open-ended, creative play is really what's going to set the child up well. He's on the same theme, a play centre parent to children. Uh, my children will only go to play centre before school. I'm thinking of starting my children at school at six years. Would this be more beneficial for them? Yeah, it depends on the individual child, but oftentimes, yes, it probably is going to be. I worry about the kid, these boys, often the ones who aren't the firstborn, that spend their brain's not going to be ready to read, and there's a process called lateralisation and stuff that has to happen in the brain. But if they're not ready till six and a half, and we start making them to do it at five, what does that do to their self-concept, their dispositions? If I get you to do something for a year and a half that's biologically impossible for you to do, how do you feel about yourself at the end of that? You feel incompetent. You feel, you know, it actually disables their learning. Right, they're pouring in, so we're going to crack through. So forgive okay. me, Nathan, Go this, is, it, this Nathan. is a good question. What about identifying children likely to struggle from the outset, uh, e.g. their visual motor integration and visual analysis are delayed, yet their brain power is excellent? Getting their talents onto paper in the school setting will be problematic and could well lead to lack of confidence, which in turn will affect their perception of themselves as a learner. You could actually apply that to any number of situations, yeah, couldn't you? Right. Yep. How do you handle it so that they don't start to get this idea idea that, uh, that, that one matter is actually about their intelligence or their ability to learn yep. when it's no such thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously you would get those things tended to with a doctor and the right specialist, but to compensate in the child's mind, I think it's metacognition, knowing themselves as a learner. Give them some of that insight to know that actually your brain's amazing at doing this, this, this and this. No one has a brain that's amazing at doing everything. So understanding your own brain is knowing which things I need help with and which things I'm able to help other people with. So they see it as normal that there's some things they need a bit of help with because everybody has some things they need a bit of help with. So when you talk about forming their concept of themselves as a learner, this is a really big one, isn't it, for any child who's got any kind of learning issue, is that you have to separate that, you have to normalise that and say, okay, you've got this going on, someone else has got this going on, but you have to keep coming back to say, uh, doesn't matter. You know, you yep. can you can learn in, in, in your own way, your own time. And That's just right. finding very simple ways of communicating that. Yeah, which is harder than it sounds. Because it's so, it must yeah. be so difficult having some sort of special needs and going through life with all the world telling you you're inadequate in some way. The parents' job's to reframe that. And it is reframed, because often the special needs are accompanied by a special talent, but it's not necessarily the talent that your school is particularly looking for in its set-piece curriculum. Yeah, that's right. You're not going to find comedy on your school report. Or if (laughs) if you've got some kind of maths genius, but you might be having some other area of learning that's more difficult for you because of the way the brain's wired. Yep. Uh, This one's a bit different. My daughter doesn't paint or colour between the lines, and I think it is all good for her creativity and development, but my husband tries to teach her to colour inside the lines. I tell him not to, but he doesn't think I'm correct. I know what your answer's going to be. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Her husband thinks she's a little seven-year-old, and he's wanting to follow the rules and be it all black and white and teach her to be as intelligent as a parrot rather than intelligent as a human. That's just putting it quite bluntly. <laughs> like, hey, she needs she can colour outside the lines. You know, the research would suggest that maybe um, you know, just give her a pen and paper and don't even have lines because we want it all open ended. 
How do you get an older sibling to stop correcting the younger sibling with language? Here's a young teacher in the making. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, if I knew how to do that, I'd be able to stop my son doing it to my own daughter. <laughs> it's, it's just the natural water of things. They're actually yeah. learning about life's hierarchies, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what the only person in the whole world that they're in charge of is their younger sibling. So <laughs> the younger sibling gets it. Um, so what, basically, there's not much you can do about it, really? Yeah, I mean, I'd talk to the older one about it. It's going to be more helpful, mate, if you just, you know, model the correct response rather than actually tell her and, and correct her. So do you tap into that sense of responsibility and power that they have yep, and exactly, um, and try and turn it around and say, you can be even more powerful yep. uh, if you do it this way and help yeah. us do it this way? Yep, and relate it to their own situation. You know, when mum and dad just tell you what to do, how does that feel in comparison to when, you know, mum and dad listen to you and ask you what your idea is and then help you by showing you another way. Not sure if this is best directed to you or perhaps to a um, physician, but it may be within your expertise. I wonder if my five-year-old child with only one eye will find some learning delayed because of how the brain works. Sight in one eye, I'm, I'm presuming. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I mean, you, yeah, I would guess that if it's happened early, if it was like that at birth, the brain has an incredible amount of plasticity at birth. You know, its ability to um, shift itself and um, bring on other areas. So I wouldn't be too concerned if the child was born that way. One tends to take one side, tends to take over the other side, doesn't it? And, yeah, and, to dominate. and, it, and it compensates. Mm. Uh, how much screen, this is a good question, how much screen, TV, computer time, etc. is okay? A great babysitting tool, but what is a healthy amount? And remember, we're talking right. three to seven-year-old age. That's right, because zero to two, it's off the table altogether. It's bad for their vision. Um, three to seven, there's no amount that's beneficial, really. But that doesn't mean that it's damaging. It really depends how you use it. Some people are going to put on the wiggles, and they're going to dance and sing with their child. And so that involves interaction and relationship. That's wonderful. Um, but when we want to get the potatoes peeled for tea and we sit the child in front of the television, there's no real benefit in that. But if it's done in a balanced way, I don't see there's a real amount of harm either. I mean, I don't want to advocate TV because there's no real research supporting it. But we don't have to overly be concerned. I wouldn't feel guilty about having them in front of the TV for 10 minutes while you peel the potatoes. The current thinking in school, says this emailer, is to use solo to promote further learning. Is this counterproductive for five to seven-year-olds? I've heard children say, I'm not very smart because I can never get to the top level. The rubric is constantly being revised upwards by the teacher. Right, OK, so that's like a competitive model. That, Must be, yeah. Right, yeah, no, I would be moving away from that. At uh, that age? Yeah, at that age. Again, it's a sort of a seven-year-old. You keep coming back to the same thing. Let them generate their own activity, generate and use their own curiosity, yep. use primarily use play yep. at this at this level rather than organise sequential moves upwards. That's right. Play is the most intelligent thing that child can be doing. Play integrates so many more of the senses and so much more of the cognition that... Um, yeah, there's so much more going on than just instructed functional play. If you, um, Catherine, you would have known, you've probably heard of Peter Gluckman, the Chief Science yes, Advisor yes, to the Prime course. Minister. He wrote that report, Improving the Transition, which is all about why New Zealand has so many delinquent teenagers. And in the summary page, the first, he gave two summary points. The second point was the reason we've got so many delinquents is because New Zealand's so punitive to our kids. Right from the time they're two, we want to stick them on naughty chairs and you know we stick them in boot camps rather than foster homes. And so reason number two was being punitive. 
causes us to have lots of delinquents. But the number one reason was that in early childhood we focus too much on the acquisition of cognitive skills when the research shows really clearly it's the acquisition of social-emotional skills. So it's not just me saying it, our chief science advisor is saying it as well. And empathy, I imagine, is something that's developing at that time as well or, or yep. beginning to develop. Yeah, building uh, on that zero to three. Which, which is interesting because uh, here we have a situation where there are some issues. My three-year-old grandson is causing much stress by random acts of violence at kindy. He's mm-hmm. a delightful child, but these scary eruptions are worrying his mother and teachers. What's the best way to deal with this? Again, his problem's being normal. There's nothing really abnormal about still a three-year-old just beyond a, toddler, really, isn't it? Yeah, 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 he's just showing a lack of empathy, and we, they're not supposed to have a lot of empathy at that age. I would say for a child like that, maybe you want to calm him down slightly, so I would spend more time in the t- day getting down to his level, getting on the floor with him, and attuning yourself to him. And then once you're attuned and in relationship, you can sort of, if you like, slow his internal clock down, easier than when he's left to self-direct. Uh, this uh, listener has two children, one diagnosed, the oldest diagnosed with ADHD, aged eight, the inattentive type, mm-hmm. and dyslexia. The middle child does not, is very academic with great focus. The youngest is very similar to his oldest brother, and we suspect ADHD. Her question is, in terms of brain development in children, especially young children starting at three who have learning differences, ADHD, how can we help them develop learning skills like concentration and focus leading up to school? Make them interested in it, I suppose. It's um, because of the child's interested in something. We all know that. If you're interested, you can stay on that task for a lot longer. So that child needs to practice self-regulation, practice staying on task. Um, so that needs to be child-led again. If they're fascinated in motorbikes, you'll get them to sit down and stay focused on a book for motorbikes for 10 minutes. You know, if you just decide they need to learn to be focused and you give them a book on something that's not interesting to them, that's less likely to happen. So again, it's follow the child's lead. Come back to what we were saying earlier about the interfering sibling. This is interesting from this email. When my son was learning to read and my daughter, two years older, kept shouting out the correct way to read the word. Rather than tell her off, we came up with a plan so my son would tap her on the knee when he needed help and she would sound it out for him. She got credit for helping him learn to read and he got to work it out for himself. Brilliant, Just love the exact it. theory we were thinking about of yep. earlier, weren't we? That sounds great. Uh, just a moment to go. Some are asking specifically about reading and literacy issues. I think we might return to another session on those because it's a session right. all in itself. Mm-hmm. Just one quick reference from a resource teacher of learning and behaviour. Nathan referred to Piaget. What are his thoughts on the current government agenda and the research of Piaget? How can we support teachers to teach and develop mentally responsive way in the face of the chronological standard set for children now? That's a big question. Why don't you wade yourself into that one? Yeah, I mean, it is difficult to try and squeeze all the kids into a box marked by, what does Ken Robinson say, the year of production, to try and treat everyone that's born in 1981 as if they're exactly the same. That is difficult. So, Well, uh, part of it is not to panic over your national standards results and the fact that they may fluctuate, yep. right? Yep, that's right. And have faith in the... I mean, the key competencies that underpin the primary school curriculum are very research-based and very evidence-based and are the right thing for your child. So don't panic too much about national standard results. It'll, it all plateaus out often later on. And the message you send to be consistent with the whole session is you make them and you encourage them about their abilities to learn because whether they're a genius or whether they do have some challenges they have got phenomenal learning abilities and you want them to believe that. And the brain can always improve. The brain can always grow intelligence. It's nowhere near as, as crystal as our parents thought. You know where it's sort of set, you're either clever or you're not You've, you know, you can always improve that. Wherever you're at, your belief about your learning will, will drive a hell of a lot. Absolutely. Lovely talking to you. Thanks very much, um, Nathan McCarty, Wallace, our parenting commentator. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.